0: You're listening to The Foreign and International Medical Graduate Show, a podcast to inspire physicians in the process of immigration to the United States and access to graduate medical education. We create meaningful and helpful content that motivates medical students and doctors throughout the world with the goal of creating a community that supports itself and gives feedback to each other Also, we'll analyze the current resources available and how to benefit from them. Thanks for joining us. Please enjoy the show.
1: Hello, everybody. Here we are with episode number 16. Super excited today and thrilled after the successful amount of uh, likes and downloads that I have had with my prior episode number 15 with Dr. Correa. Following these uh, motivational comments and the flow and the influence that we have had so far in the internet with our friends throughout the world, I'm going to introduce to you guys a fantastic guest, Dr. Shay Dada. She is a physician, international medical graduate that initially went for undergraduate to very prestigious universities. She went to Temple University for her first undergraduate year, then followed by the NYU in New York City, New York. And this was followed by accomplishing a degree in, in, as a doctor of medicine in the St. James School of Medicine in Bonaire, the Netherlands, and Teels. This has been followed after that with a preliminary year in internal medicine at the Flushing Hospital Medical Center in Flushing, New York from 2014 to 2015, and then she finished and accomplished a residency training program in neurology uh, at Hackensack Seton Hall University in Edison, New Jersey from July 15 to July 2018, and she's currently residing in Gainesville, Florida. She is obtaining a sports neurotrauma fellowship. She's actually an inaugural fellow. What that means is she's the very first one obtaining this specialty career path, and I think it's exciting because she concentrates on training that is focused on the diagnosis and treatment of neurological disorders with emphasis on teen and adult sports concussions, in an elite NCAA Division I athletic program and a top-tier university level one trauma center. She's also specializing on treating acute and chronic post-concussive sequelae in an Olympic level, NFL, NCAA athletes. And she is also specializing in sports neurotrauma, traumatic brain injury, concussion subtypes, and vestibular ocular dysfunctions. She also has a special interest on integrative medicine, headache syndromes, and behavioral neurology. On top of that, she's a remarkably free philanthropic physician that has been reaching out to the community of foreign and international medical graduates for the last year or so through her Residency Success website and Facebook page. So having said all that, I'm going to welcome Dr. Dada. Dr. Dada, thank you for being here and tell us more about yourself and how you got here.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Wow, that was quite an introduction. I almost don't recognize who that was that you were talking about. (laughs) So uh, just to tell you a little bit about myself, I feel like I'm the best mix of basically having been in the trenches like you, all of the IMGs, but as you can tell by my accent, I am basically brought up in the US, so I have the unique perspective of knowing the culture and what people are looking for. Also, one thing I believe I forgot to mention is that I did work for a few years before going back to medical school on Wall Street, And so that experience comes in very, very handy because I interviewed in the trenches on Wall Street with the best of them um, and worked there for a few years. So my communication skills were really, really honed well at that time. And when I talk about communication skills, I'm not just talking about speaking. I'm talking about, you know, written language communication skills as well. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go further. But I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: No, this is super exciting. I know that uh, a few years ago, there was no resources on the internet to get mentorship and uh, counseling on how to approach the USMLE. In my personal opinion, 20 years ago, there was pretty much nothing out there and internet connections were limited. Internet web surfing was via the old dialing in phone connection. We didn't have the capacity to download files or communicate with other people across the world. So nowadays, we have these amazing platforms that you're reaching people through. So, I want to ask you how you came up with this idea and what's your goal and how you want to help the foreign and international medical graduate community through your uh, residency success uh, approach.
2: You're right. There is or was not much out there. And what was out there, I felt, basically was more for profit. I feel the idea of the philanthropic idea, which you just coined, I feel is the best way to describe it is because I really believe in the concept of karma and paying it forward. Because at some point, there were some people that lend me a helping hand. And this was before, obviously, the podcast era. (laughs) And obviously, there are some mentors that lend you a helping hand. And I want to pay it forward. You know why? Because I was just doing this on the side because of my communication skills and strong interview tactic and skills. It's basically a psychological approach. My undergraduate degree at NYU is in psychology, so I use a lot of that. While I am actually helping, you know, students or other doctors, but I started off doing it really while I was at these university programs with the residents and medical students. There, they would just come to me, you know, gravitate towards me, and I would do mock interviews with them and help them out. And every single one of them would end up matching. So I, I felt like, you know, maybe I had something here. And then once I had a little bit more time as a fellow, because as you know, there's not much time uh, during residency. I felt like I could really take it more mainstream and put it out there for the people that I didn't know in order to help them as well.
1: And that's how we found each other on the internet. And I think collaborating on this uh, goal that we have of getting the message out there in a spontaneous way, I think uh, has really impacted our community. So having said that, most of my guests have said so far through many interviews that I have hosted That having a coach and a mentor that is U.S.-based, that has gone through a process, is the way to go. And in your personal opinion and experience this far by coaching people, how do you feel that a person that is an FMG or IMG that gets coaching gets more rates of success compared to the ones that decides to go solo with no assistance from anyone?
2: You know, I feel that it's really great, all of these forums and online places that we have in order for people to gravitate to each other and have study partners, et cetera. I use them, um, obviously, during my prep, but there was really nothing out there uh, for interviewing. And don't mistake it. In other countries, basically, the way that you match into a residency or a fellowship of your choice is strictly based on credentials and test scores. Here, once you get an interview or before you get an interview, it's really about your personality and basically how you can sell yourself in the 10-15 minutes you are in front of somebody. And I think that's where they really fall flat because their communication skills, their spoken English, their um, ability to understand American humor, idioms, body language... Those things can only be taught by somebody who's been on residency interview committees like me all throughout my training and has uh, extensive, extensive, you know, background, really psychologically interviewing and training people to do so. The other thing is that a lot of people are using Skype or, you know, FaceTime to practice with each other. And I really discourage that because... The person you're practicing with may just be at a lower level than you and have really have no idea about what type of responses are required. Believe me when I say the tactics have to be personalized to you because the people who are interviewing you, imagine has done this throughout the years and have interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people and can see through rehearsed answers.
1: Absolutely. In my personal experience, I remember locking myself in a room like I am right now in my, I apologize about the crazy background, by the way, I'm in the most best accustomed room in my house, and probably it's not the best type of background to have, but uh, it's there, I apologize, but I used to lock myself in a room with my colleague, and he's currently an attending at Harvard, when my, and we used to rehearse, because we didn't know any other way to do it, but you know, definitely having someone that has the experience and has a significant psychology background on how to approach an interview, because it's like uh, a speed dating, right? They oh, get yeah. you in through a day in which you're moving from one room into the other, from the program director, the associate program director, the clerkship director, and every 15 to 10 minutes, they're knocking on the door and moving you through, you know, and you get exposed to six, seven people within a morning, and that's how the day goes, correct?
2: That's absolutely true. You are kind of on an assembly line. Sometimes you'll enter a room and there'll be six people sitting around a conference table, just staring at you, where they're taking turns interviewing you. Or you can, you know, have smaller group interviews. Um, or for me, the way I like to interview is usually they would have lunch set up for me and the candidate. We would quickly eat, and I'd be like, "Okay, put on your jacket. Let's go for a walk." So I would take them actually outside in the campus while I was asking them questions so that they are caught a little off guard, but they might be a little bit more relaxed because they're not thinking so much about the whole interview experience. So everybody has a different approach. And for me, it's like really kind of taking you off guard and seeing how you're gonna perform at the time that you're there. And there's no way to expect what you're going to see that day.
1: The fear of interviewing is overwhelming. I had no coaching. I'm gonna tell you what I did. It's kind of crazy and outside the box. Uh, during the two years that I spent in Iowa getting my waiver and labor certification as a family physician working in the ER, I saved every single patient sticker. Nowadays, probably not HIPAA safe. And I tabulated every single encounter, how many stemis, how many strokes, how many bronchial bones, how many sedations, how many intubations, how many central lines I have placed. And I carry all this thing in a little back by my side to show them how much I wanted this opportunity to train in emergency medicine. And believe it or not, the connection didn't happen through that. They, they had seen my CV. They had known what I had done. But the connection happened about more personal interaction. We actually connected about something that I'm extremely passionate about and that happened to be tennis. And I saw a broken racket behind him that for me was like a cue that he was probably interested on it, and my program director just kind of closed the the interviewing folder for with my c v put it away, and said, "I know everything that I need to know about you," and we started talking about tennis and life and so forth and that's I think how I got in but uh you know it's it's about developing I guess psychological skills, communication skills, and finding a connection with the interviewee and be yourself, I guess.
2: Yes, absolutely. And that I'm so happy that you shared that story. Thank you for sharing that. There is a certain, like, uh, in French, the word is je ne sais quoi. (laughs) It's like, I don't know, like something that I can't even explain in words that if you, personality must come out, you know? And it's my job as your coach to help you figure out how we can actually best use those parts of your personality to make you shine. And, you know, I could be a little tough when I'm working with people and they give me these canned answers and I'm like, boring, you know, (laughs) boring. Put that away. That is so boring because it's like if I hear another person when I ask them about what their hobbies are, just like you, you highlighted the best hobby. You looked at the environmental cues you had, which were the broken tennis racket and you (laughs) made a story. You know what I mean? And if I hear another person say, you know, my hobby is to spend time with my friends and family, I just yawn and die of boredom. You know, (laughs) so you have to do your research. Now, I think it's a little easier than when we were interviewing. There's so much out there on social media and even the internet, read people's bios, find that little clue that's going to distinguish you from the next person. That can only happen with someone who, if you don't know how to do it, then you need that coach to help you.
1: Absolutely. Based on the people that reach out to you, what are the most common reasons they seek after consulting and what are they looking to improve? What are the most important things that they want to really brush up upon?
2: Yeah, that's actually a really good question. Unfortunately, a lot of the people that come to me have already used other um, more reputable or heavily marketed, I would say, sites or where they have not gotten any positive or good feedback. They've paid thousands of dollars and they've fallen still flat in their interviews and they're still in their second or third match cycle. I'm not saying my approach is going to give you hundred percent, but I will guarantee that my approach is different. You know? Absolutely.
1: And whatever gives you an edge, I think is important. Exactly, Exactly.
2: And I'm not going to do the same old things. We can go through the most common interview questions, but you better believe your responses are going to be very different than what other people have taught you.
1: When people from foreign countries uh, reach out to you, are they concerned about their broken English like mine, the accent, the demeanor, the dress code, the smells, the personal perfumes, the fragrances, the breath, all these little things that you think are not going to be important that are so cultural specific. And I'm not trying to discriminate or be biased, but believe me, all those little subtleties make a difference in the way people perceive you, especially knowing the culture of the United States and some cultural biases that they have towards immigrants and sometimes foreigners, you know?
2: I am so glad you brought this up. This is an elephant in the room, unfortunately. Yeah,
1: it's, it's a hard topic to touch on because it's, it's so topic. sensitive.
2: It's sensitive. But, you know, for me, I can be quite offensive as a female that is of... uh you know, like immigrant background and kind of get away with it. <laughs> I think it's tougher for men.
1: Absolutely. Call same, it out. <laughs> same here.
2: Yeah. But first of all, I want to say one thing about the accent. Of course, the Hispanic accent is more sexy than an Indian uh, accent from the mainland. And I can say that because I'm of Indian origin. It can, you know, the thing is accents, it doesn't matter that you have an accent. It just matters that your English be able to be clear, there's has clarity, people can understand. And also, I've noticed that people from British backgrounds, the words that they're using in their countries, they are not used here, you know, so make sure the words that you're using are applicable in American medicine, A, and B, that you're pronouncing the city or the places that you're going, there the names correctly. Like imagine if I, you went to an interview and someone's pronouncing your name incorrectly the whole time.
1: Mm -hmm, Correct.
2: You are pronouncing their name incorrectly or the city where you're interviewing, like you don't understand how many times I have to correct them. I'm like (laughs) sit and you know, recite this until you get it correct. Don't walk in there and pronounce things incorrectly. And in terms of personal hygiene, Obviously, you know, in other countries, it's acceptable to have nose rings, it's acceptable to wear a lot of jewelry, it's acceptable to wear loud colors, because that's how you express yourself in certain cultures, you know, Indian cultures, African cultures, even Hispanic cultures in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, here, it's a little more subtle, right? You have to sort of blend in. Don't be a penguin. The penguins are the black suit, white shirt. You don't have to be that boring. I do have a video on that, like on my uh, Facebook page about how to dress and things of that nature. But, you know, body jewelry, nose rings, um, heavy makeup for women is a no-no, hoops, things like that. Try to be very subtle. And, you know, if you're not sure, just look at some pictures of how interviewers should be dressing, like in the corporate world in America. And there's just look, do a Google image search, you know, short nails. You know, clean shoes because people are looking at everything you're doing as well. And I think it's important uh, to be polite, but um, be also able to keep up conversation. One big problem also is the inability to carry on American humor and small talk, which is kind of sarcastic
1: sometimes, and I wouldn't understand it.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: I'm going to give you an example that is rather funny. A patient of mine during my internship. Elder man is sitting watching television, and he had been in the hospital now for five or seven days. And I thought we had some degree of rapport, and I have gotten to know a lot about this guy. I'm a personal freak about Superman and everything oh. related with Superman. And my attending steps into, th- uh uh-huh, steps yeah. into the room and says, "Oh, Mr. Smith, let's call it." Yeah. And he looked at the TV and look at him and said, "What are you watching?" And Mr. Smith answer, "Well." I'm watching the show about Louis and Clark. And I interrupt and I say, oh, I didn't know you liked Superman, uh, Mr. Smith. I said, no, Alonso, it's not uh, Louis and Clark. It's the ones that, you know, went through the United States discovering the path. Just those little things like cultural background. You need to know when to interrupt. If you don't know what they're talking about, little few things could make a huge, huge difference.
2: Oh, oh, absolutely. Because... You have to think about yourself. If you had a company, let's say, right, and you're interviewing candidates, don't you want the people that are going to add to your company in some way? Don't you want the person that you're going to not be uncomfortable around, you know, that you can talk with if you see them in the elevator or sit next to them at lunch, you know, or become friends with them during the residency process? And I describe it as like the military, like it's a very tough thing. You want to be in the trenches with somebody at 2 or 3 a.m. that's going to have your back.
1: Right, We had a fantastic group of residents. Actually, one thing that I have seen through the process is that certain deans of certain medical schools, they, want, they tell the program directors, I only want top tier, 99 percentile grads from Ivy League schools. I want top scores coming to this university. I want you to recruit the best people out there from the best names. I want them super strong academically. And what I have seen is that Sometimes people that are great taste takers have zero or no social skills, zero communication skills. And specifically, I saw this in the evolution of my training program in which at the very beginning they hire characters and people that would get along from different countries and racial backgrounds and we all mingle in a way that was super exciting i would say i had the most fun in residency training that i have ever had when i was working with these people and now they bring these people with huge scores that are super bright excellent test takers but have zero personality
2: right i feel like it's a very very difficult thing to get both If I could say so myself, I think you and I both possess those skills. This is why we're here on a public platform trying to share. But that is a very big um, issue in medicine, I believe, because, you know, a lot of times people are just studying straightway through and they don't have the different experiences in life that requires or hones these type of social skills. Also, a lot of FMGs or IMGs come from very sheltered backgrounds where they've lived at home their whole lives and the first time they're coming abroad you know, to do anything by themselves. So it's really not the person's fault. But it is your duty to diversify this type of thing by practicing, or reading, or putting yourself in such social situations where you can get out of your comfort zone.
1: Yeah, and that's sometimes really tough. Dr. Data spinning this a little bit and changing the topic. I was searching through your website. And I know that some of the topics that you specialize on is medical residency coaching, as we have spoken, USMLE test-taking strategies, ERAS electronic residency application system interviewing process, how to build a fantastic resume or curriculum vitae or in a personal statement, and also biostats preparation, among many other things. Can you tell us a few things about the other ones that we haven't spoken about?
2: Sure, sure. I've had people contact me before they even take step one. And I think those people are so smart. I wish I was them because I would have never thought, oh my God, I need guidance and coaching now. But the people that before they actually start, that's what Mm. the Yuba family strategy is about. Before they start, they have a coach telling them. And also time management is very important. A lot of people like, oh, I'll work for six months and then I'll apply, but time gets away from you. So you really need to hit those deadlines for the The match cycles; otherwise, you wait another year. That's what the U.S. strategy is all about—just strategizing what rotations would be the best for you in order for you to get the best letters, have a a really good and clear timeline in order for you to succeed. And then the ERAS interviews—you know that also everybody knows that it opens in September, but but by October, people are scrambling once they start getting interviews or they don't get interviews. I actually had someone uh, come to me. Who works for the leading test prep we will not say the the name I mean, the leading yeah. test prep in this uh country because they weren't getting any interviews they had such great background but then i did a u.s Emily strategy with her and then she had two interviews within like a month you wow. know yeah because it's really not about just saying hey emailing your friend and say hey can you ask your program director it requires a little bit of finesse right Especially if you haven't talked to somebody in six to one months to one year, you can't just hit them up like that. You know what I mean? You need to have a little bit of understanding about how to network and how to ask people for something when you are really dependent on that that, you know, sort of like help. It's actually been a great ride. I feel like I learned just as much from my coaching students as they learn from me because it constantly keeps me on my toes and makes me research things. So what I do is uh, before I even meet them for half an hour, I go over their personal statement, their CV, and prepare myself and write down points that I feel that they should really highlight during their interviews. And then I see what type of skills they have, and then according to that, we build a plan. Like we'll need three sessions or five sessions, or this is what I want you to work on. And I always give them, you know, homework that they do, and then they come back again from uh, working with somebody else because you know you're doing like that Skype interview, uh, prep with somebody else who has no idea and they tell them something different. And I'm like, well, they're not somebody who's in a residency program. Like, what is their background that they're giving you this feedback that, you know what I mean, that would make you successful? So you have to think about that as well.
1: Awesome. I try to bring into the show sometimes questions that my listeners and my followers uh, bring uh, elicit through my Facebook page. And I have a, a good one here. And I wanted, since you're, we're coming on the show, to run it by you. This young gentleman, he used to be one of my employees in my scribe company, and had the opportunity to go into medical school in the U.S., but he didn't want to incur on the debt. He was a dual citizenship holder. He was He's Mexican as well. And he decided to go to the University of Guadalajara. Right now, he's in his very last year of medical school. And he approached me asking me the following. I said, Dr. Osorio, I'm in my last year of medical school. Uh, the University of Guadalajara prepares you to take a Step One, a Step Two, and the passing rate is about eighty percent. But you know, only probably ten to fifteen people per class out of hundred are taking the the launch of coming into America. So he's saying the course of preparation this highly regarded company is going to be paid for five, seven thousand dollars that he's going to take to take a course is getting paid by the university for me to succeed and pass, what do you recommend? Should I take a step one before I finish medical school or wait until next year, incur in the debt of paying for a test myself and give myself more time to prepare for it, especially knowing that the timeline with the pass and fail score is kind of coming up. So that's creating a lot of anxiety. What would be your advice in this specific circumstance?
2: No, thank you for that. It's a very good question. I always say that I like to, I always set up like a 10 minute call with a candidate who would have a question like this to kind of gauge a little bit their readiness. Okay. And the next thing I would say is I would look at their CV and, and give them an idea because it's very difficult, right? Uh, to gauge readiness, except for if the first thing I would tell them is like do a, like an NBME or a USMLE World Assessment. And based on that, we can tell you if you're close to or hit the target passing, how much time you may need. You see what I'm saying? And what are your study skills like? Tell me how what your scores have been in the past. You know, um, so I take all of that into like an aggregate sort of mental computer and then I give them advice based on that. So based on this person's, uh, it sounds like they're very on top of it. They have worked before. Um, they should be very, very highly motivated to get this done. I would say do it within three to six months, but only taking after taking a U.S. Assembly World assessment, and then after that, you know, hitting the the topics that are very low on the the scoring first, and then coming up with a spaced repetition sort of a review method for those, and then hitting the topics um, slowly. But this means that they have to make sure that they don't have too many other commitments because that's another thing people like oh i need research i need this i'm like great you're going to do a hundred million things and then you're going to get like a borderline or a fail score on the steps that's not going to help you yeah uh, i've made that mistake where i feel like oh i'm going to have like a million things on my cv and that's going to make me look so great to the programs but once they look at your score as a fail that's not going to matter to them. So keep that in mind, guys. If you're a person who can't multitask and who really can only do one or two things at a time, use your time wisely. That's the only thing we can control in this process.
1: Excellent advice. What's your take on, and really briefly, how do you feel about the most controversial statement that was recently published by the USMLE on changing the scoring from pass to fail And specifically, how do you think, from your perspective, this will affect the matching possibilities for foreign and international medical graduates?
2: You know, that is a controversial topic. I've read uh, some of the, uh, basically, feedback from, from people, everything from program directors. I've been speaking with program directors in my own program about how they feel about it. I think, obviously, this is going to sort of level the playing field for everybody. But at the same time, now I think program directors are going to look more at the places people graduated from um, than subsequent uh, steps like step two CS and CK uh, to determine like an aggregate sort of picture of the person. I really do believe personally, like I lost like 20 years off my life studying for step one. It's the most difficult in my opinion of the, all of the steps Uh, because it's so unlike clinical medicine. I think you would agree. Yep. But at the same time, I think it's going to hurt the FMGs in a way, because unless all of their other steps and their uh, CV is extremely strong, they're just going to give preference to just the AMGs now, regardless of what we're looking at, whether it's family, whether it's ER, whether it's DERM or RADS.
1: Specialty-specific.
2: Right. But I think in a way, at least then this monkey is off people's back where they're obsessing about the step one score. I feel like now that it's past fail, just pass the step one and really start hitting CK and CS step three as well, uh, as soon as possible. And then please don't fail the CS. Like that's another big thing some people just go in and the number one uh, reason I, I hear is that I just didn't know what I was getting myself into. So there should not be in this day and age of disseminated electronic information and ability to ask people questions on forums, that excuse, like, I just don't want to hear it. Do you know what I mean? Makes uh, sense. Like, because the number one issue that I have in working with people to overcome is their red flags. Okay. So don't wave your red flags in their face. Like for example, I was uh, doing a mock interview with someone and just trying to see their ability. And, you know, he opened up with, my name is, you know, Dr. Smith and I'm a foreign medical grad. And I said, eh, let me stop you right there. <laughs> Why are you saying that right off the bat? They know that you're a foreign medical grad. Like there has to be something more interesting you can open with. Absolutely like there's some common sense tactics obviously that i employ that maybe you just don't see we work to kind of soften the red flags and uh, highlight the things that are more important but i really do feel that the other steps are going to be more important now for the next couple of years Uh, it will be very important for you to obviously pass the step one on your first try and then do well on the others and the cs is important guys because as an FMG, they want to see your uh, communication skills. There's no way they can do patient encounters with you when, they're, when you're in that interview for that one day, right? They are trying to see if the CS, if you pass it on your first try, that you can, your spoken English is good, your communication skills are good, the ability to write notes are there. Um, that's the only way they have to say it. And once I sit on the committee and we review the applications and the CS is a fail that puts you by like, further down the list, you
1: should yes. understand. Yeah. Let's say that I'm a foreign medical graduate, considered coming into the U.S. Before even attempting to get started on this process, what do you think should be the mindset psychologically, their geographical relocation, how could it impact the process? And what do you think they, they have to be gathering financially to take on this endeavor?
2: You know that I was just about to say something about the financial and you took the words right out of my my mouth. I think it is extremely important that you are honest with yourself about your finances because what happens is a lot of people start the process and then they have to stop and start working. And then that creates like a five-year, 10-year gap on their CV. And then they're finally going back to match. While I do believe that's a very, very noble and humble way to get to the end. Like, as we know, the year of graduation is another thing that will count against you if you're out of medical school for too long, unless you're in a direct patient care or, or a clinical research type position. So financially, you, you know, I can't put like a dollar amount on it, but the more the better if you have good savings or ability to borrow. Um, and also be honest with yourself. Like most of the time, I think, and I'm the same way, you know, and I've gotten better as I've failed and as I've had roadblocks and people tell me no in going back and being really honest with myself about my abilities. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like for example, I uh, work with a lot of NCAA and Olympic athletes, you know, in my practice. Does that mean all of a sudden I'm going to be like, oh yeah, I can be Olympic swimmer. <laughs> you know? It's not because I would have to train for years and have some type of innate interest and ability to do that. So if you're someone who was at the bottom of your class, let's say in medical school, and it always took you longer to pass tests, give yourself the time, be honest with yourself, sit down with your family and project like, you know, finances. Because, you know, if I was a program director, I and as an FMG, I would be more uh, likely to listen to that story that it took me 10 years because I did not have the finances. But Maybe somebody else just wouldn't get that. you know what I mean?
1: And you have to explain every single gap of education or performance, you know?
2: Yeah. And the other thing that you mentioned about location, I think now being the global world that we are, the location matters less as long as you're able to finally get the visa that's required to come here. I actually know a candidate who was offered residency two years in a row, but then did not get the visa. Wow. And he gave up.
1: Obviously, immigration is another huge topic that I don't feel proficient on. Right. But what are the most common questions that you get from the applicants regarding the immigration process?
2: They just don't know how to start. Where would they go? I do believe, like you asked me, um, getting an attorney is the best way to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, They are on the ECFMG website, very clear. And I also, on my page, I have like a pathway, the J-1 and H-1B waiver that you can apply for, but they have specific amount of slots. So the earlier you do it, the better it is, you know, being educating yourself about it. Or if you just don't have the time, then you outsource it to a knowledgeable immigration attorney. I think that is another issue that they have. And I honestly, like you said, I'm not proficient because, you know, I am American and I never had to worry about the uh, visa issues, at least Uh, with everything else I had to worry about I can't believe, like, how much more stress that would put on somebody. You know,
1: it's a huge amount of stress, and right. it's not easy, and it's expensive as well because attorneys are not cheap in the United oh States. Oh
2: my gosh! I know. I should have been an attorney.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Dada, how do you think uh, any foreign medical graduate could really strengthen their resume or their CV to shine in front of these highly competitive United States medical graduates that look like rocks or some paper?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think, look, there is an innate ability for some people. And I want to, there's a word that's been coined recently called emotional intelligence. Yes. So EI, before it used to just be intelligence. And I think American medical schools or residency programs really care about this emotional intelligence now more than ever. Meaning you sit down, you're honest with yourself about what you're good at, and then you go after that. It's not just the research anymore. It's not just, you know, your scores anymore. It's an aggregate of your personality, as well as your, I guess, outside, you know, activities. For example, like if you showed up to me and I was a program director, I'd be like, wow, you have a podcast, really? You know, that's amazing. And then maybe you're in your thank you letter or your thank you email, you can give them a link to the podcast. That's just one example. Having something besides uh, you know, what you're doing now uh, shows, like, instead of saying words, I always say that people can say, the sky is blue, you know, and today is Wednesday, and you can tell me all these things, but if you don't give me an example, like, I'm a self starter, well, that shows that you're a self starter. You have a podcast. You know, I have great communication skills. Well, that shows you have a great communication skills. You are seeking out all these experts in the field in order to help other people that you don't even know. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is just one example. Not everyone can have a podcast, but between the lines, even working at like, let's say, homeless shelters and and coming up with like a GoFundMe, let's say, right, for something for the Detroit homeless shelters. And I raised $10,000. Like, whoa, that is a big deal. Like this doctor is going to go far because they think outside the box.
1: Make yourself stand out among others. Wow, that's Great. fantastic.
2: And for that, you know, if you need like help, I'm there for you. But that has to be in an earlier time frame, not like, oh, I'm in the middle of the math cycle. And now I have to come up with something crazy and different than everybody else. You
1: know? What would be the top five, five tips of advice that you will tell using this interviewing platform right now to foreign medical graduates, international medical graduates that they could take home and work on off the bat?
2: Yeah, that's the tough one to narrow down. But number one is appearance. You have to make sure you're well-groomed. And what that means to you culturally is very different than what that means to American grads or American residency programs. So if that means you have to spend an evening in Nordstrom talking to one of the stylists, then so be it. And number two is just uh, preparing ahead of time, having a roadmap of dates, deadlines, so you're not scrambling you know, at the last minute. Uh, number three would definitely be uh, working with a mentor that knows you, that's in the American graduate system, Or, you know, like a program where somebody gets it, like, you know, with you, Javier or me, like where they're listening to your podcast and then coming to me at a specific point with a very clear idea of what they want to achieve. You know, Uh, the other thing that I would make sure is that I know that nobody can undo test scores. Yes. Okay. Uh, you have to be very honest with yourself about your prep. And it doesn't really mean, you know, that you have to spend a lot of money on uh, these test preps and things like that. You have to figure out what works for you and whether it's, you know, studying with somebody in person on Skype. But use your time wisely. And also the other thing that I really think that people neglect is their physical, emotional uh, health. So I always do post, and people probably think, why is she posting this? Things about emotional health, um, you know, like uh, getting counseling if you're depressed, you know, getting on medication if you have anxiety or depression. And you as a physician should know you shouldn't ignore that, because what's that going to do is you're always fighting these feelings, and you're not really able to focus on the study, because you're constantly ruminating, and you're constantly wasting time, and you're always in this, like, pulling my hair up sort of mode, you know. (laughs) The other thing is making sure that you're getting enough sleep, some type of exercise daily, um, yoga, meditation, connecting with nature, and listening to some motivational thing every day, whether you're spiritual and pray and belong to, you know, a house of worship, um, that's fine too, but it has to be a multi-pronged approach. You know, just because I sit here and coach you for an hour every day and you listen to one podcast and then eat potato chips all day and then don't eat the rest of the day, it's just not going to give you the adequate fuel you need in order to become the person you need to be.
1: This is a huge topic. And actually, there is plenty of physicians out there specializing right now on wellness. And I think the medical community in the U.S. also in the edu- graduate medical education has come into an agreement that wellness is extremely important because you touch a topic that is remarkably critical. Depression, burnout, not uh, spending quality time with your family, not spending time on yourself to debrief, de-stress, et cetera, is crucial. Wellness is fundamental because we all know that we physicians are, are prone, of, uh, prone to depression, especially if we cannot make it into a, 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 a program or if we didn't pass a test. So just just take care of yourselves. Find a way, like Dr. Data says, uh, just said that.
2: Right. And, you know, this is actually a personal sort of thing that's very interesting to me. Um, so I am on the wellness committee of the uh, phys- uh, hospital, as well as I do a lot of, like, uh, research on alternative medicine and, like, that microbiome and mental states and brain health. So that could be something we explore at some other later time. But it's very important because like food is your fuel, right? And the words that you hear is what's going to shape your psychology going forward. That for the next three months, the six months. And there's always going to be naysayers, but I always use the people who told me I couldn't do it or put me down to put the light, the bigger fire you know, under me. So (laughs) it all depends on how you cope and those kind of strategies, because you really could give it your all, but it just may have not been the right approach. But does that mean you give up? No, you just regroup and you come back stronger.
1: Wow. Excellent advice. And one more question, Dr. Dad, I know that you also have been coaching people through the matching programs and the NRMP. This is remarkably overwhelming, and for people that are not used to use this algorithm and are not familiar, I personally went into the website of the NRMP on YouTube, and sometimes even the video explanations are not very clear to me. What would be the most simple advice on how to confront this remarkable barrier, I would say, because it's not easy to match or rank programs, or, and after you do that, what is the likelihood of matching? I know it's a loaded question, but... Right. The- the few things that you could advise someone on how to approach the NRMP?
2: Right, I think they really should be coming out with videos. So now they have videos this year, as of this year, featuring um, IMGs or FMGs. I think there's a link on one on my page of one explaining the process and the deadlines and things. But I really think in a country with all immigrants, they should have more uh, options with different languages.
1: Absolutely. Just kind of honing cultural diversity, right?
2: Yeah. Cultural diversity of American medicine is there. 25% of physicians are IMGs and uh, I am a part of the AMA. I don't, you know, I feel like there are certain things that if I were to get into a leadership position there at some point, I could probably uh, move along and kind of assist with giving them some tips. But I think uh, if there's something you don't understand Just don't sit there, right? Figure it out. Find someone to ask. Find another website if it's not the NRMP because there are so many other places that explain it really well about how it does. And the best thing is call up a friend who just went through it last year. Pick their brain a little bit, okay? Because they have learned from their mistakes, hopefully, and they can pass it on to you. So just hearing it from a friend, perhaps in Spanish, that went through it, the year before you, I would say, is like the best way for you to get that the advice and start building your knowledge about exactly how approach it. And the best thing is use all the technology that's available to you. There's apps now. NRP Prism, there's an app. Um, when I went through it, there was no app. Everything was online. And inevitably, the website always crashes every year, <laughs> you know, during the important times when it's like match time and when it's time to, like, release your, you know, uh, in, in September when you release your, like, uh, application. So just keep that in mind, give yourself time. And also during the time that there's, let's say the match day, my advice to you would be uh, have uh, some people like friends or family that take the day off during the soap to help you make some phone calls or uh, organize your thought or provide you support. If you're just like alone somewhere in a dark room by yourself, like freaking out, it's not a good I'm gonna
1: work out. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So the soap is like, you're going to have have everything ready, like, like a packet that you can send programs um, about your candidacy and why they should pick you if there are open spots, but not before. It's only during the SOAP that you can do that. And uh, the chances to find a spot, it's very difficult. I think if you're somebody who has interviewed and been in the interview cycle and had a few interviews, and especially at if the open spot is at a place that you interviewed, you have a relatively good uh, likelihood of getting a spot because they've already interviewed you. The other thing is there are some people who just pay the money and just enter the soap because they haven't done everything early enough. I think that's just not a good way to do it. It's just kind of waste of money and time. I don't know of many people who've been able to secure spots that way. So I would discourage that generally.
1: Wow, fantastic. I'm going to tell you for the last hour, you have given us some real words of advice and some significant pearls. So Dr. Dada, without taking that much time of your life right now, and thank you for, for giving me the opportunity to be here with you. To wrap it up, anything else you want to tell us from the bottom of your heart to our listeners that is motivational and that will get them going and will lift their spirits and, and make them succeed?
2: You know, I'll tell you, there's something that I read this morning and i put it on my Facebook group. So please go to residents Success on Facebook, join the group. Uh, interact and follow with the page. my website is still under construction, but this is a quote from Mark Twain: Keep away from people who try to belittle your ambitions. Small people always do that, but the really great make you feel that you too can become great. So those who don't know who Mark Twain is he's a very famous author and uh, poet in American history so With that, I just want to conclude, do not give up. Surround yourself with the right people that can be part of your success. And if you are paying so much money already for USMLE world and thousands and thousands of dollars for these tests and letting them expire because you're not ready or you're emotionally stunted, come to us, you know, come to me. There's other other people doing this too. But my job and my goal really is to empower you with the right tools so that you can really give yourself an edge.
1: As I said before, uh, Dr. Dara is going to be a wealth of knowledge for all of you. Not that I'm biased, but uh, with her resume, her background on psychology and working with, you know, people with the brain and with all the experience personally with the current applicants that she is working with. I think uh, we should visit her uh, Facebook page at Residency Success and like it, and obviously, If you think that Dr. Dara is the right choice for you, please go ahead and visit her and chat with her, schedule an interview. And well, we're gonna wrap it up. Dr. Dara, I really thank you very much for being here today. It's been a fantastic hour plus of your time. And we hope that, you know, this works out for many people out there and uh, everybody can get some bits and pieces of useful information from our interaction.
2: Okay, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, gracias.
1: A ti. Gracias. God bless you.